This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the COVID-19 news got a little better for us. Signs that the curve is flattening. So far, so good. But we were also reminded to keep our discipline locked down over Easter because COVID-19 never takes a holiday. We hear about a surge in people paying up online to support journalism and some of the covid and corona clowns caught in the media spotlight lately. No. They've gone to get their woodies, so much so that only in New Zealand this is a news story. These two admitted they drove here from Mount Roskill for Woodstocks. It was bloody obvious to me at that point. I felt like yeah. a complete dick, okay. if I'm honest. Yeah. But first, we also look at some pundits and politicians warning us in the media that lives can't always come before livelihoods during the current crisis. And even before the first official hints that we might have turned a corner this week, some were pumping up the volume on calls to loosen the lockdown. Queen is about to make a special address. It is only the fifth time she's broadcast to the nation and the Commonwealth. We are delaying the news bulletin to be able to take this in full. She's expected to acknowledge the grief, pain and financial difficulties Britons and those around the world are facing. We can cross now to the Queen. I'm speaking to you at what I know is an increasingly challenging time. A time of disruption in the life of our country. A disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many. That was Morning Report's Susie Ferguson rolling back the 7am bulletin on RNZ National last Monday for the Queen's broadcast to the UK and the Commonwealth. Now, as a digital age influencer, QE2 is not exactly a prolific producer of multimedia content. Aside from her annual Christmas message, she's done just five other broadcasts and more than 65 years on the throne. But the Crown still pulls a crowd in a crisis, it seems. Her Majesty's message was broadcast simultaneously by our biggest media outlets last Monday. Together we are tackling this disease. And I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute then we will overcome it. I hope in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. And the media have certainly responded to that challenge too, even those whose very viability, already in doubt before COVID-19, has suddenly become an acute problem. Now that sentiment from the Queen struck a chord with Amanda Gillies, the co-host of the AM show that was aired on 3 and Magic Talk Radio. Uh, the pride is not in our past, but what we are determined by our presence and our future. And I thought that was really lovely. Well, we'll start doing it now because the Queen's told us to yes. do it about two weeks after. The, the, the most crucial picture? Uh, she's been through everything. 1940. First, hey, what? First quite, quite the broadcaster now, isn't she? I mean, mm. she even uses overlay mm. and she talks to her pictures. Mm, that was pre-recorded, of course, yes. But while the Queen spoke of the collective effort to save the lives of the vulnerable, some in the media lately have not been fully behind that, as we'll hear later on. Now on Monday, the hosts of the AM show were also among those turning up the volume on efforts to loosen up the lockdown by opening up more businesses. Businesses right now are screaming, are screaming for a signal that we will return to work soon. And now I think is the time for Ardern to leave the COVID chaos to the Health Ministry and focus on the exit. Call in key. AM show host Duncan Garner just half an hour before the Queen's speech on Monday and elsewhere media personalities were amplifying those screams. I'm starting to feel desperate for businesses who have been told they're not allowed to operate during this lockdown because the rules are starting to look really unfair, aren't they? I mean, we're now seeing ridiculous examples of what is deemed essential. It turns out a $759 dressing gown from Alan Riley's website is essential. Heather Duplessis-Allen on Newstalk ZB, one of many in the media to seize on that pricey dressing gown to illustrate the inevitable inconsistencies in the rules. 
Now, the same day, News Hub made a big deal about farmers offering T-shirts online in winter, even though New Zealanders do sometimes wear T-shirts in colder seasons, often in conjunction with other clothing on top to make themselves a bit warmer. And as they often do in these daily on-air editorials on ZB, Heather Duplessy-Allen ended it with a rhetorical question. If we are relatively, relatively relaxed with most things, then why are we not relaxed with businesses who can do their jobs safely and just keep the economy ticking over just a little bit more? Now, the answer to that is obvious, to stop people travelling to more neighbourhood stores and spreading the virus, and to ensure that those who aren't already set up to package and deliver goods safely don't start up suboptimal systems from scratch at a crucial time. But when it comes to food, there were definitely inconsistencies in the rules, and the media highlighted those really well. MB admitted to TBNZ on Tuesday, for example, that the rules weren't clear, something reporter Kristen Hall illustrated starkly like this. All sorts of businesses are delivering through the lockdown. This sex toy company says it's essential for New Zealanders to be able to get their products delivered. As for your French pastry fix, the rules for new delivery services are still being thrashed out. Back on Monday's AM show, they were thrashing that issue of food retailing by asking the audience. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, our poll today, should the government, I think they're really in support of this, should the government allow stores like Butchers, Greengrocers to open to take the pressure off um, the supermarkets? I think it's got ridiculous. The queues which we're trying to avoid are being formed as a result of the whole lockdown policy. Our numbers are. Yeah, 71% say yes. Mm. Uh, no, 29%. Hey, just on your go. And it's hardly surprising that, if asked, most people would say that they would like more outlets open for essentials. But for the AM show, it was queues at the supermarket and not public health or the viability of business that was the driving force, especially for Mark Richardson, who confused Pack and Save with Passchendaele. Because supermarkets, um, yeah, they, they feel like you're going to the Western Front in a way. You're running mm. the gauntlet. I, I, I did it once to, out of boredom, so mm. I, might, I might do the supermarket. And, and I hated being there. Really did. Mm. Felt quite exposed. I, what, what to? To the COVID. Soon after, on Magic Talk Radio, the listeners heard actor leader David Seymour tell the morning host Peter Williams an early end to the lockdown should be on the cards if public health wouldn't be compromised. And that's a massive if, which neither of them really addressed. But the AM show's listeners could be forgiven for thinking that this was an idea whose time had come when Duncan Garner told them COVID-19 had already peaked here though his and his co-host's reading of the data on that was far from convincing. I think we've peaked. Yeah, what you do is you find, uh, you find the mean line, mm. and then you draw the mean line, and the mean line uh, is, is probably... No, it, it, the mean flat. line is flat. Oh, actually, the mean line might be, be going down. Uh, no, it's flat. Is it the mean line or the median? Very difficult one. Mm. Yeah. Give or take. Yeah. Either, yeah, either one. It'd be mean to go yeah. further than four weeks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If it's multi-choice, well, well have we got uh, uh, have we, yeah. one shot in three. Everyone listening to us, because we clearly yeah. know what we're talking. Actually, by the way, none of us, none of us <laughs> pass maths. None of us are mathematicians. We're all no. famous. And that might be funny if they were bantering about something else, and not New Zealanders who contracted a potentially deadly illness. The AM show's hosts weren't the only ones, though, looking at declining numbers of new cases and wondering whether we might have turned the corner. The Director of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, raised that possibility with the press on Tuesday, and the Prime Minister said so on Wednesday as well. But exactly what's around the corner is another thing. Ashley Bloomfield was not talking about loosening or shortening the four-week lockdown. Indeed, the Prime Minister ruled that out on Monday. However, some of those in the media were pushing for it nonetheless. Among them, News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking, who was also among those who had loudly called for a lockdown earlier. But the numbers in total don't add up to much. 
The borders are closed essentially. Those arriving back are down to a trickle. Despite the fact that they're not being quarantined, the clusters such as they are seem reasonably contained. You would, as amateurs in this whole business, be excused for thinking there seems little reason why all of a sudden now, out of nowhere, the numbers would suddenly spike. So using that as a working model, let us jump ahead a little bit to the next crunch point, the next point of angst. What reopens at the end of four weeks, eh? The key word there was amateurs, the kind of people you don't want making the post-lockdown plans. And there are very good reasons that numbers could spike if the economy is opened up as Mike Hosking wants. In South Korea, for example, they're now having an uptake in new cases after initially flattening the curve like us because the virus is still out there. Mike Hosking told his listeners the plan for coming out of lockdown would be a mixture of courage, guesswork, luck and potentially even a bit of magic. No mention there, though, of expertise and planning. Back on the AM show, Mark Richardson seemed to have convinced himself that actually supermarket queues weren't really a big deal after all. Uh, The supermarket usage is actually down about 50%. Right, um, But the fact is it feels like there's crowds. It feels like mm. everyone's going there. It is definitely down, but you could push that, I think, further down and make things safer by giving us other areas I to agree. go yep. to get out. Is- and with that, he actually crashed the start of the special broadcast by the Queen. Further down and make things safer by giving us other areas I to agree. go yep. to get out. It is food. time now to hear from the Queen. She's I'm giving her first televised address here she is. It's an increasingly challenging time. When Her Majesty did finally get on the AM show, the viewers and listeners heard her say this. And though self-isolating may at times be hard, many people of all faiths and of none are discovering that it presents an opportunity to slow down, pause and reflect in prayer or meditation. But for those broadcasters on the air for hours every day, like the AM show, rather than once in a blue moon like the Queen, pausing and reflecting doesn't really seem to be an option. There has also this week been lots of important must-read reporting about why lifting the lockdown is not something to be taken lightly. For example, in an enlightening comparison of New Zealand's response with the responses in other countries, Stuff correspondent Charlie Mitchell pointed out Estonia declared a state of emergency just a few days ahead of New Zealand. Its curve initially showed signs of flattening, but has since returned to its previous rate of growth. And part of the reason is its lockdown was not quite as strict, and it allowed some shops to remain open. Also on stuff, two leading health experts, Michael Baker and Nick Wilson, explained other countries with looser suppression strategies have regretted it and have had to progressively tighten up their restrictions later on. There's been lots of good broadcast journalism as well, and at newsroom.co.nz, Mark Dalder has produced an in-depth analysis of the options and also comprehensive critiques of what he called bad-faith arguments put forward by proponents of a looser lockdown. You can find links to those and other excellent reporting by others this week in the online version of this story on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, and the Media Watch section of the RNZ app. On Thursday, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters told News Talk ZB there were huge tensions between looking after the health of New Zealanders and saving the country's economy. Do you personally want to get us back to work more than the people who would argue that health is imperative at all costs? Well, health is an imperative, but it cannot be at all costs, and I'll tell you why. If it's at all costs, we can't afford to pay for it. We'll be broke. So we've got to be rational, saying keep our feet on the ground, keep our eyes wide open, keep a common sense approach. 
there are ten, there are huge tensions, but enabling the economy to pay for the health of delivery is going to be critical here and into the months ahead. Pundits who are pushing hard to open up businesses and fire up the economy this week after lockdown ran in tandem with commentary pondering the economic cost of making health and lives top priority, especially for the elderly who are at greatest risk. And that commentary is happening all over the world where the tough action's been taken. Your money or your life was how one columnist categorised the genre in the UK. Here, it was an opinion piece by Auckland University epidemiologist Simon Thornley, which was published by Stuff last week, which was the first to put that cat among the pigeons. He said only a fraction of the deaths on the Diamond Princess cruise ship and in Italy were entirely due to COVID-19. Most deaths, he said, were caused by people's other ailments kicking in. So, we don't want to squash a flea with a sledgehammer and bring the house down, said Dr Thornley. In the morning after, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB was convinced after a chat with him on his show. They were dying anyway. They're old people and every single one of them had an underlying condition. They either died with or of, we don't know, but because we've become alarmed by it, all we say it's of, when really it was probably with, and the numbers were there anyway. Do you know how many people die in the world every year of flu? It depends who you ask, but the WHO, the most recent study, was between 290,000 and 600,000. So they don't bury them by a truck. There are six, up to 600,000 people every year die of the flu. 600,000. We don't close borders, we don't land planes, we don't crash economies. Currently, from this virus, there's a death toll of 40,000. 40,000 versus 600,000. No need for trucks, no need for alarmism, no need for an overwhelmed health system. That was on the 1st of April, 11 days ago, and Mike Hosking changed his tune on the border shutdown soon after that. But on that day, he left his listeners with this thought. The underlying issues in the Western world mainly are as follows. Junk food, lack of exercise... Bad air, and those lead to underlying health conditions. Virtually everyone who dies of this has an underlying health condition. 14 past 7. It was just a few minutes before Mike Hosking was reading out advertorials for non-pharmaceutical treatments on the market aimed at the older listeners seeking to stave off some of those underlying conditions. And they support the body at a cellular level because healthy cells help with the energy levels and the memory and the healthy metabolism and ultimately, of course, healthy ageing. So your mobility, your sleep, your immunity support still very important during this time. And so you're less... In the New Zealand Herald last week, under the heading Save Lives But At Any Cost, question mark, columnist Matthew Hooten raised the issue of intergenerational fairness. He said offshore experience showed hardly anyone over 60 would die of COVID-19, but the prosperity of an entire younger generation was being compromised. The long-term interests of two million younger people in particular, he said, needed much more explicit consideration. And Mike Hosking was back on the case last Monday, putting it even more starkly. The country simply can't afford the $3.5 billion a week bill for this, he said. And he complained that no one was reporting that people dying in Spain and Italy were old and dying anyway, though that was actually one of the main themes of the lockdown punditry in week two. Mike Hosking, for his listeners, ran through some numbers. It is a fact. Places like Spain, for example, have a death rate of 9.2 per thousand. Italy, it's over 10 per thousand. In in other words, in Spain, well in excess of 400,000 people die per year, over 1,100 people a day. If we ring those deaths up on scoreboards the way we are with this virus, we'd be alarmed. 
Maybe so, but the 10 people per thousand who die in the normal course of events in Spain or in Italy don't usually die all at once, as they might do during a pandemic, so the services can handle it. As one doctor explained, a drive through burger shop can sell many hundreds of burgers a day, but if one man pulls up asking for 700 burgers and fries in one go, well, not many people behind him are going to get a burger anytime soon, or at all. Overseas, the pundits have already had this debate in the media, and sometimes it's been borderline eugenic, but at other times, more thoughtful. The Herald published one such piece on the 30th of March by an advisor to the UK's Department of Health, which first appeared in the UK's Financial Times. Camilla Cavendish said she'd been forced to ponder the choice between throwing the whole NHS at a bunch of old people who were reaching their final years anyway and damaging the futures of the young into the bargain. But in the end, she said, it was all a moot point if the healthcare system itself was under threat from a surge of infected people, whether they were old or young, as has happened in parts of Spain and Italy. On Mike Hosking's breakfast show on Monday, he told his listeners that this health stance at the expense of the economy was launched through a fear of our health service being overwhelmed. But he said there were plenty of spare beds here in hospitals because all elective surgery had been cancelled for the moment. How sorry will we be as thousands face joblessness, we face debt for generations and an economy in recession for what turned out to be potentially not a single death that would not have occurred anyway. Hospitalisation that barely dented the sides, but a reaction, as one epidemiologist put it last week, that was a hammer to crush a flea. But of the empty hospital beds he talked about, only 122 of them were in intensive care units. A report to the Ministry of Health on the 23rd of March predicted ICU capacity would be overwhelmed in less than a month after the lifting of social distancing here if the lockdown and subsequent actions failed to eradicate the virus. Few of the pundits claiming that the cost of saving lives may be too great have also considered what life and healthcare might be like post-lockdown if we did. On scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that it could create a two-speed society. Freely socialising and working young people who suddenly require ICU care might come at the expense of pulling the plug on older people receiving the care who might have already done their best to avoid infection. And compared to that sort of situation, he said the morality involved in the current lockdown looks refreshingly simple. It protects the vulnerable and it saves lives. As we emerge from the lockdown, Gordon Campbell said the trade-offs and ethical challenges are going to become more complex and difficult to negotiate. But other pundits and politicians who've been warning it's a choice between your money and your life actually right. In a piece for Stuff last Monday, public health professors Michael Baker and Nick Wilson said if elimination is achieved here, the country could return to reasonable functioning much earlier than if they'd adopted other strategies. And new research on old outbreaks in the US might just back them up on that. Back in 1918, as the Spanish flu was spreading from the east coast of the United States towards the west coast, some cities were quick to put in place social distancing rules. Other cities waited. And once social distancing rules were in place, some cities enforced them for a long time to fight the Spanish flu. Other cities only had them for just a little while, possibly because they worried about the effects on their local economies or they just didn't take the threat seriously enough. That was the NPR business show Planet Money in the U.S. on a paper called Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not. 
The authors of that said that cities which intervened earlier and more aggressively back in 1918 grew faster afterwards when the pandemic was over. And the other thing that also happened back in 1918, when the lockdown was eventually lifted, the virus was still out there and people were different. And so in a pandemic, the pandemic uh, itself has such a severe negative consequence on the economy that any policy that you can use that actually mitigates the severity of the pandemic and reduces the risk of contracting the virus and reduces the ultimate mortality is actually going to allow the economy to come out stronger on the other side. And so in a pandemic, these public health interventions essentially target the root of the problem that's ailing the economy, which is the pandemic itself. And that is the key insight of the paper. Emil says the choice is not between social distancing measures that end the pandemic but hurt the economy versus leaving the economy open and strong while allowing the virus to kill a lot of people. Leaving the economy open and allowing the virus to kill people will still result in economic damage. Only the economic damage will last longer because the virus will kill more people, injure more people, and there will just be more uncertainty. There, Planet Money in the US was talking to Emil Werner from the MIT, one of the authors of that paper. The other two, incidentally, weren't public health professors, but bankers from the US Federal Reserve. Now, clearly, 2020 and 1918 are very different worlds, but the same methods were employed when that pandemic struck over a century ago. And here's what Planet Money host Cardiff Garcia said about that. But the question of just how much to enforce social distancing and for how long is one that is being asked by countries all throughout the world right now. And they are arriving at different answers, just like American cities were arriving at different answers back in 1918. So it's worth keeping in mind that we have run this experiment with a global pandemic before. Back then, the places that limited the spread of the virus early also ended up limiting the economic damage. And yet, it now seems like we are running the experiment all over again. Certainly does. One significant difference back then, though, was the lack of mass media. Save for newspapers, it wasn't possible to get the same advice out widely when it really mattered, and that's one of the reasons why individual cities' responses in the US were inconsistent and often ineffective a hundred years ago. But now that we have news media that are almost ubiquitous, spreading the Unite to Fight COVID-19 message and critical information on how to do it is much more effective However, it also means the voices of those warning we may have to choose between our livelihoods and the lives of others are much louder as well. As we've heard here on Media Watch recently, the COVID-19 crisis has hit the media hard. Already, our biggest magazine publisher, Bauer Media, has closed down here, and bigger players in the news media market have already warned that cuts are coming. And while there's never been a bigger demand for their news, online engagement is going through the roof, but there's not much money in that for our media. Now, some journalists have sent out the message that now more than ever, subscribing to local publications and outlets is vital to their survival. And this week, the co-founder of newsroom.co.nz, Mark Jennings, said that they'd seen a sudden surge in voluntary donations to the site. But is this happening elsewhere as well? Well, one source of donations for Newsroom is Press Patron, an online platform for supporting quality journalism by turning readers into paying supporters via memberships, donations and subscriptions. Its founder and chief executive is Alex Clark. I asked him, have they seen a surge in support for other platforms? Yeah, we've never seen anything like this before. So for context, uh, back in January, we had about 400 supporters sign up and about 500 in February. Uh, in the past 
four weeks, we've had 7,000 new supporters sign up. And these are people that are paying money towards their favorite media sites. And are they paying uh, a one-off kind of lump sum saying, I hear the media's difficulties, I recognize this is an important time for media, here's some money? Or are they signing up as members, as subscribers, and committing to making this an ongoing thing? So the vast majority are recurring. So they've chosen either a monthly or an annual option. And even the people that have been making one-time contributions, the size of those one-time contributions is the equivalent to what an annual contribution would normally be. The January average for daily payments was $2,500 per day. And even that, that was making a significant difference for our clients. That was still quite a few journalists being kept in work or new ones being employed. Um, in the past four weeks, that daily average has gone from 2500 up to 25000 per day. That is quite remarkable. I guess this is being spread over a number of services. I mean, if you go on Press Patron, you can see there are a, a lot of outlets. Uh, but are there particular services that they're gravitating to? Um, we've seen it across the board. It doesn't matter whether it's for-profits or non-profits. Um, what's really important is the mission of the publication and just the strength of their journalism. So where we've seen the biggest growth has been for, journal, uh, for media sites and for publications that are they're not scared to tell their story. They're, they're, they're being honest with their readers. They're talking about the absolute crash that's happened in advertising. And that happened, that's that been happening for big sites and for small sites. They're just letting their readers know that online advertising isn't going to work, definitely not during the crisis in particular, the COVID crisis. But what is working is reader support, direct financial support from readers. For me, most of our clients, it's getting to the point where it's close to replacing that lost, lost advertising revenue. They might be able to start exceeding the revenue they used to get from advertising. If readers keep rallying behind quality journalism um, instead of laying off their journalists, which is, is happening right now. Do you think it's a reliable enough stream that people who are making decisions about the future of their organisations, be they big ones or small ones, uh, could actually think this is a viable enough stream that we don't have to take difficult decisions? Uh, definitely. So it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's definitely part of the solution it's a it's the strongest part of the solution so there'll always be a place for advertising but the role of reader revenue is just increasing the monthly amount of recurring revenue coming from their supporters has always increased so it's always outweighed the cancellations across the network so those um, people so who sign up and, and contribute regularly have actually increased or upped their contributions or, or kept them going at a greater rate than people are dropping out Exactly. So I was looking at the cancellation rate um, at the end of last year. So I did a pretty comprehensive analysis across all the sites. Um, on average, only 2% of donors are cancelling each month. That's a pretty high proportion when you compare this to a traditional paywall subscription. Sometimes you lose um, more than half your subscribers in a six-month period. And I think the key difference there is that the, the supporters are actually choosing the amount and frequency of payment that matches their budget and that they're prepared to pay. And counterintuitively, um, patronage actually results in higher percentages of people paying and higher payment averages because in the last month, the number of $1,000 and $5,000 contributions going through, you'd, you'd be surprised at. Even for outlets that have modest audiences, um, one of them had a $5,000 and a $1,000 contribution go through the amount of generosity out there, if you let people choose an amount um, and trust them, it really can work. 
Newsroom's Mark Jennings uh, wrote an article basically telling readers that this was happening. They'd had a surge both directly to them and I guess through Press Patron, a platform they use. If part of the model for them and others is corporate sponsors supporting journalism, do you think Press Patron is something that could help fill that gap if inevitably some corporate sponsors decide to um, pull out of backing the media organisations they've been happy to support up till now? Uh, definitely. They can weather the storm um, quite strongly. They haven't reached the point where they're they're through this yet, but um, if these trends continue, they can realistically reach that point if more readers and viewers and listeners rally behind their work. If um, publications are, are honest with their readers about the situation and emphasise the powerful impact of their journalism and what can be achieved with those that extra funding, um, it really can work really well. Have you had a surge in media outlets now coming to you, recognising this is a possibility? Yeah, you'll see a few more big names going live over the next few weeks. Um, and last week, um, the Otago Daily Times went live. So at the bottom of articles, you'll now see um, a small call to action message, just letting readers know about the importance of supporting their journalism through these times. Perhaps are you clipping the ticket on this? What does Press Patron and yourself get out of it? Yeah, so Press Patron takes a 5% commission to keep our operations going. So that's really important to be able to fund the development cost of this. So full transparency, we've spent about half a million dollars building Press Patron. We've raised uh, $2 million for publications across our network. So a 5% commission across that $2 million, um, that only represents $100,000 of revenue so far. And Alex, right now we know there are talks going on between the government and specifically the Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media, Chris Farfoy, and media executives about what uh, has been described as medium-term assistance uh, up till now for the media industry. I mean, that's getting more urgent as every day goes by. Is there any role that Press Patron could possibly play as some sort of platform if the government is going to get more involved financially in the, uh, the the news media as things stand? Yeah, I think there's a really strong role for government in really amplifying the impact of reader patronage. So at the moment, we're proposing a dollar-for-dollar dollar matching fund that would be um, provided by government. And so what that would do would, would double the amount of revenue that publishers generate through Press Patron and on top of that, it's further incentivizing the public to come on board as supporters. So we think that would be quite effective way to really streamline the process of getting money from government straight into the hands of um, local publications so that they can be sustainable through the crisis. Have, have you actually approached government with this? Are they aware that uh, you're, you're proposing this? Yeah, I sent an email through on Tuesday, still waiting to hear back. I can appreciate it. It's a, it's a pretty substantial proposal, but we do think it would be a good way of trusting the wisdom of the crowd and letting taxpayers distribute some of their own government funds. Yeah, not just the wisdom of the crowd, but their wallets too, right? Yeah, exactly. So they're backing something themselves personally and helping to direct some government funding that comes from their own taxpayer um, money. It was Alex Clark, founder and chief executive of Press Patron, an online service platform for supporting quality journalism, turning readers into paying supporters via memberships, donations and subscriptions. And you can find out more about it at presspatron.com, where you can see the range of services and news outlets Press Patron supports.
And finally on Media Watch this week, it's been a bad week for Health Minister David Clark, who offered to resign after breaking his own advice to the country about staying in your bubble. The Health Minister David Clark has told MPs on the Epidemic Response Committee that he knows he's stuffed up after breaching the lockdown rules. This week, David Clark had to do a humiliating round of mea culpa interviews, like this one with Duncan Garner on the AM show. It was bloody obvious to me at that point. I felt like yeah. a complete dick, okay. if I'm honest. Yeah. Some people this past week didn't like journalists pursuing the health minister and the prime minister about this in the middle of an epic health crisis. But you can't have a minister failing to heed his own advice to the country and not account for it in the media. Media Watch's Hayden Donnell has written a piece about some of the misplaced criticism of the media on this. It's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app. But the Minister of Health wasn't the only COVIDiot called out by the media this past week. In fact, last Tuesday, he didn't even make the list of the day's corona clowns on the Rock's morning rumble. It says people are still turning up in massive numbers to church. And a reporter goes and asks one of the churchgoers, what are you doing here? Can I ask you about your decision to go to church to be inside that building? I wouldn't be anywhere else. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. People who don't go to this no. church. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. Okay. I'm covered in Jesus' well, blood. Other people who don't go to this church who you might encounter. All of these people go to this church. No, but you're going to be in places where other people I go are. to the grocery store every day. I'm in Walmart, what? Home Depot, all of those people. But you people. could get them sick from what happens They the could church. get me sick, but they're not because I'm covered in his blood. Thank you very much. Yeah. If you're wondering why the cases keep on going up in America, that's why. The Morning Rumble also called out the Christchurch man convicted for coughing and sneezing in a supermarket there and dumb enough to put it on Facebook and the Aucklanders who crossed town to spend hours queuing for RTDs and spirits at the West Auckland Trust-owned liquor outlets. They've gone to get their woodies, so much so that only in New Zealand this is a news story. Lead news story. One in five shoppers traversing the city in lockdown for hard liquor. These two admitted they drove here from Mount Roskill for Woodstocks. As long as I get it, that's all. <laughs> there was over 150 people in line, total time in line, because I thought, oh, this will be fun, let's see how long it takes, was two hours and 52 minutes. But the Rumble crew left the last word on Tuesday to one of their listeners who delivered this stirring message on social media on the importance of keeping calm, carrying on and staying at home where you can't bother anybody. A bright light. His name is Matt Jordan. He's on Instagram. You might have seen him around Crate Daytime. Yeah, have a listen to what he's got to say. Hey, there's a lot of um, fun stuff going on uh, during the lockdown. I just thought I'd start my own thing um, and just nominate uh, people to do just absolutely f-ing nothing because I'm not f-ing interested in doing 20 press-ups. or. <laughs> he's so good. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, to stay inside or anything. Anyone who knows to stay inside will stay inside. No amount of Facebook posting about it. Uh, if you're going to go outside and be with, there's nothing I can do about it. And um, nothing you can do about it either. Same as, you know, maybe going down to the sumac and filming people and going, oh my God, look at these idiots. Well, guess what? You're one of them. And that's all I've got to say on the matter. Oh, that, that guy's going to get so us Not quite the same tone as the official messaging on fighting COVID-19 there, but certainly the right sentiment. In fact, Matt might be good at helping with the under-fire Minister of Health's communication strategy, but from that, it sounds a bit like he's not all that keen on working from home. 
Well, that's all from us here at Media Watch this week. And before we go, a reminder that Media Watch at the moment is homemade by me. So apologies for the lack of finesse and any glitches. Let's look forward to the day when we can offer you proper RNZ studio quality once again. Meanwhile, Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Brian Crump next Wednesday, and we'll be back again with more Media Watch for you at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.